Give me one second. Just there. Mary Ellen.
take 10 peeled oranges. Jarvis Masters, it is the judgment and sentence of this court. One eight ounce bowl of fruit cocktail. That the charged information was true. Squeeze the fruit into a small plastic bag. And the jury, having previously on said date. And put the juice along with the mash inside. Found that the penalty shall be death. Add 16 ounces of water and seal the bag tightly. And this court, having on August 20th, 1991. Placed the bag into your sink. Denied your motion for a new trial. And heat it with hot running water for 15 minutes. It is the order of this court that you suffer death. Wrap towels around the bag to keep it warm for fermentation. Said penalty to be inflicted within the walls of San Quentin. Stash the bag in your cell undisturbed for 48 hours. At which place you shall be put to death. When the time has elapsed. In the manner prescribed by law. Add 40 to 60 cubes of white sugar. The date later to be fixed by the court in warrant of execution. Six teaspoons of ketchup. You are remanded to the custody of the warden of San Quentin. Then heat again for 30 minutes. To be held by him pending final. Secure the bag as done before. Determination of your appeal. Then stash the bag undisturbed again for 72 hours. It is so ordered. Reheat daily for 15 minutes. In witness thereof. After 72 hours, I have hereon set my hand as judge of this superior court with a spoon, skim off the mash, and I have caused the seal of this court to be affixed thereto. Pour the remaining portion into two 18-ounce cups. May God have mercy on your soul. Welcome. That poem knocked the wind out of me the first time I read it. Jarvis Masters' genius combination of two unlikely to say the least instructions was something I'd never seen before in poetry. I've used it in many classrooms as a teacher of creative writing, underscoring its originality of form and power of message. I had no idea it was a winner in the Penn America Prison Writing Contest until I began working at Penn just a few months ago. Activist folk singer Pete Seeger was quoted as saying, songs are funny things. They can slip across borders, proliferate in prisons, penetrate hard shells. I always believed that the right song at the right moment could change history. Well, so can a poem. Or an essay or a story or play. Exactly. (laughs) My name is Kate Smeissner. And I'm Robert Pollack. And together... We, with some incredible interns, shout out to Grace uh, Kearney, Christina John, Aaliyah Austin. We oversee the prison and justice initiatives here at PEN America. On behalf of over 7,000 writers, translators, editors, and other members of the literary community who belong to our organization, it is our great pleasure to welcome you to the 14th annual PEN World Voices Festival of International Literature. I feel like that needs some applause, yes. I'm going to tell you a little bit about PEN, so bear with me. PEN America stands at the intersection of literature and human rights to protect open expression at home and abroad. We champion the freedom to write, recognizing the power of the word to transform the world. Our mission is to unite writers and their allies to celebrate creative expression and defend the liberties that make it possible. 
with offices in New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., and with members in all 50 states, PEN America is the largest of more than 100 organizations worldwide that makes up the PEN International Network. We work to ensure that people everywhere have the freedom to write, to convey information and ideas, to express their views, and to access the views, ideas, and literature of others. Now let me tell you a little bit about our program. Uh, for more than four decades, PEN America's prison writing program has amplified the voices of thousands of imprisoned writers by providing free resources, skilled mentors, and audiences for their writing. Prison writing committee members, please stand if you're here today. Woo, or raise your hand. Yeah, thank you. These committed writers read hundreds of manuscripts sent to us from throughout the nation and deliberate to award writers in six categories, cash prizes, public recognition, and thoughtful notes of encouragement. Award winners and writers with promising manuscripts are also offered participation in our mentorship program with working writers through a letter exchange. At any given time, we are supporting 250 mentorship relationships. We thank you guys so much for doing that hard work. Yeah. Yes. Some who have been doing it for 30 years. Amazing. We also want to take a moment to honor the incredible history of this program and the people who supported its vision and administration. For many years, Jackson Taylor and Tim Small worked with unwavering commitment to support and amplify the voices of incarcerated writers through the Penn Prison Writing Program. The program's reputation within the prison arts movement is unparalleled as an early innovator and a deeply meaningful experience for many writers behind the walls. It is no small task, let us tell you, to create a system of engagement in a landscape nearly devoid of technology. Operating through mailed letters, Jackson and Tim orchestrated this program into what we see today. In a transition meeting, Jackson shared his guiding question, what is best for the men and women that we work with? It is this care and intention that allowed the beloved and transformative program to touch so many lives. We are grateful for their work creating this powerful legacy, and wish them the best in their next endeavors. And we're proud to carry this work forward. Hoorah. Inspired by this history, yes, you can clap for them. Today we're also excited to share our deepening commitment to confronting our era of mass incarceration with the launch of the 2018 PEN America Writing for Justice Fellowship. Generously funded by the incredible Arts for Justice Initiative, this new fellowship will con not consider, will consider many writers, and commission six writers emerging or established to create written works of lasting merit that illuminate critical issues related to mass incarceration and help catalyze public debate. The application just opened a few days ago and is open till July 1st, so if you're interested or you know someone who might be right, go to pen.org and send them all there. In the face of unprecedented threats to basic human rights at home and abroad, your support is more important than ever in protecting the freedom of expression and a free press, defending fact-based discourse and resisting measures that would impair the free flow of ideas, and of course, connecting writers in prison with the outside world. Please consider becoming a member of PEN America today, if you're not, giving an annual gift attending our literary gala on May 22nd, at which we'll honor Stephen King and campaign for two journalists imprisoned in Myanmar for exposing a massacre in a Rohingya village. For more information about all the ways you can join us, visit pen.org. Just a few final notes. Close to final notes. Uh, 
In your program, you'll notice the biographies of our readers who have generously offered their time today to stand in for writers in prison. Our readers today are artists and advocates in their own right, and we hope you take the time to learn about their own profound and meaningful work on the page, on the stage, and in the world. You'll also notice that we invite you to post notes and feedback to our reading today on social media by using the hashtag PenBreakout. We will be collecting those responses to send back to our writers in prison along with the program for the event. Feel free to email us further responses to share. Uh, for a writer in prison, receiving something in the mail that's a sign that your work has been received by the outside public is its in, not only encouraging, but I think it, it promotes this culture of openness, connection, and transformation that we're working toward. Also, even though we've sounded fairly uh, serious up to this moment, I want to remind you to feel comfortable in here and uh, that even in the darkest places, our whole range of emotion can be on display. So laugh out loud if you want to, cry if you want to, smile, clap. We're excited to share these readings with you. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, supporters, and volunteers who made the Penn World Voices Festival possible. Thank you all for coming today, and thank you to our readers and guests for being part of this. Yes, and now that we have saturated you fully with information, including that there are books for sale by McNally Jackson. You can also donate books to Books Through Bars. You can also buy a book from McNally Jackson and donate it to Books Through Bars. Great idea. Thanks, Asha, for that idea. Without further ado, I want to introduce uh, somebody very special to me who I met working through Tribeca Film Institute's Media Literacy Program at Otisville Prison, co-writing curriculum, and then uh, discovered upon joining Penn that he had won the contest like four times over the years. I'm so proud to introduce him today to talk about that experience and to also read some work in our show, uh, Alejo Daoud Rodriguez. It's like, so I have two mics to work with, and both of them are taller than me. I, um, you, we have to work this out. You should have prepared um, for, this set, for this moment. Um, so listen, thank you for the applause, seriously. Thank you. It's like a really big honor to be here. Um, I just was released from prison, as Case was talking about, in June 13, 2017, um, after doing 32 years of incarceration. Um, thank you. Thank you. And it's, and it's really a great pleasure to be here, and it's an honor. But it's an honor because in more than just that I'm here and that I'm free, I'm around so many friends. Um, there's so many people in this room that I've known throughout the years that actually helped support me while I was doing my time. Like Bel Shafigny's here, editor of Doing Time, 25 years of Penn Prison Writing Awards. And it was her who, who blessed me the opportunity to... Um, allow my work to show up in a, in a printed form, in a published form, and it's still alive today, and it's still being read today by other generations. And you know, I, and there are two other women in this room, and the room is so full of friends of mine. But there are two other women in this room that also came to prison to recite their work, right? And one is Asha Bandele. We we laugh amongst us of the years that have went by. But if anyone's seen Asha recite her work, you know, it's kind of like this gyration type thing going on. And, when, and, and the days that she came to recite 
in in prison. I swear they were going to escort this child out for smuggling contraband. Um, and she just she moved, but she left an impression on the entire population. And of course, I cannot forget Lisa Jesse Peterson. who is not only a, like the, the typical model look and beautiful and elegant, but it's not just how she looks, it's how she leaves people with that same sense of elegance. You know, she came in as she began to form her one-woman act play, Peculiar Patriot. She came in to consult with us in terms of his authenticity. There's no other way of sharing community than doing that, and it was a great honor to be a part of that. Thank you. Um, but you know, I cannot, I cannot mention friends without mentioning um, Janine Pommy Vega, who passed away in 2010, the princess warrior poet, um, who is a very dear friend and still continues to be, and it seems as if this gathering today, for those who know her and those who know her not, um, it's, 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 it's a reflection that the purpose of our legacy and this art is still alive. It continues to move. And this is what art is. Art is something that extends beyond the page. It must take shape. It must be alive. It anchors and it edifies. Right? It broadens. It fills the hollows of the many days I had in a cell inside of a cage talking to myself, trying to find my sanity. If, and that's still a question if that still exists. But it makes for great poetry, being a little bit insane, right? Um, but it also reminds me that Art in and of itself is something that cannot exist just in the word. It must exist in action, in building community, because this is who we are. This is how it begins to transcend. It, it, it is that fluidity, network kind of building thing that you really can't put your finger on it, but it's alive and forever moving. And this is why I sought to gravitate towards through poetry. I didn't seek to get involved with poetry simply to be for the art of it, to want to learn to the muse. I was fighting for my life, for my freedom, for my humanity. My only chance to reconnect to the outside world was at stake in a pen and a paper. Most of it was thrown away because it seemed to make no other sense. But it was, it was, it was a learning process. Today, I no longer write poetry. It's been over 15 years, right? And partly because I had to fight my legal battles to get out of prison. And there's something about the law that just kind of kills poetry. You have no, there's something, there's something about the law. That you start dealing with that, man, your headache. And you, you, it works a whole different other part of the brain, believe me. Um, yeah. But one thing I did realize that I was no longer intimidated by the legal work because I realized I knew within myself how to claim my voice. And I learned that from the art. I learned that from this work. 
I knew how to trust myself and how to, the sense of feeling and connecting with others. And this is the part when we talk about how this work lives. Now, you know, it sounds really romantic when you talk about it, oh, great, this is poetry, but you know, I also knew that it was a balancing act because I was fully aware that there were those who were seeking to listen to the, to the trauma-informed prison poet, right? As with some kind of voyeuristic desire to, to save my soul, right? Or there were those who were eager to want to just hear my story so they can profit, or my story is similar stories, so they can profit from it. And as much as I wanted to withdraw from that act and part of the balancing, I said, I don't want to be a part of that. I also realized that if I refuse, and if I have the ability to claim my voice and I refuse to do so, then I will forever be imprisoned. See, before I even entered into my first day in the prison cell still echoes in my mind. 32 years, it was my first day that I really sat in a prison cell and, and observed my surroundings. And, and the odd thing about it was I felt comfortable. And the odd thing about the comfortability is because it was for the first time in my life I was able to see the barriers around me that was confining me. See, I had been living in different forms of imprisonment for quite some time, failing schools, right, inadequate housing, Right, racial discriminations, jobs discriminations, racial profilings. That has been my existence. So by the time I entered the prison cell, there was some comfortability, at least I, I could touch it. This is why when I speak about, we have to talking about uh, an art, if you would, it cannot live on the page. It must be active such as, I, I believe it was a South African poet, um, commonly known, he has a very difficult name for me to pronounce, but he's commonly known as Brother Willie, right? And Brother Willie wrote, wrote in a poem, and one of the verses was, the day that the poets put down their pen and pick up the spear will be the day, will be the last form of poetry. The day that the last form of poetry, in other words, is the social activism. That the poem, that the art of it causes to you to move, must stir to move, to change something. If not, we could just talk about turning the page. And that's not what I wanted for my life. I was fighting for freedom, and I still am. I am still standing before you as 86A0607. If I get violated today, I'm back upstate. This is real. From the depths of the core, it's very, very real. And we have the opportunity to listen to people from prison writing poetry. This is more than just a, an issue of imprisonment. This is, a social, this is a real social issue. It's a social commentary. This is not just the voices of people explaining what it's like to be in a prison but maybe even offering insight into what it's like to be confined, like I spoke about before, in those invisible barriers that we all 
have experienced in our own way. This is bigger than the word, and yet it is the word. Right? It's bigger than art. It's, it, it has to be a moving thing. This is what compels so many of us to read and still be motivated by things we read hundreds of years ago, that was written hundreds of years ago. We still see it and we moved by it. And it pushes us to be something, to recreate something more profound than when it was when it was written. So today we're going to have some recitations from different poets and this, and this great cast, this all-star cast. But I hope today um, when we leave here, there will be a little bit of that last form of poetry in all of us. Thank you. fuck is you? Look, money, I think it's beautiful that you are engaged in this philanthropic trip. I couldn't do it. Teaching essay writing to prisoners, I mean, shit like that. I have too much contempt for my colleagues here, and writing is a gift. Sure, you can be taught the concept of an introduction, body, and conclusion, but no one can teach you how to write. That part takes talent. And even then, you got to stay at it with psychotic zeal before you work out all the pretentious kinks and just talk beautifully. It would drive me bug fuck. So good on you, mate. But what I'm getting at is, I'm not really looking for some highfalutin jack-off on a philanthropy trip to pat himself on the back because he donated his time to an aspiring unfortunate I send you the stories because I want you to see I have the goods. If you don't think I do, okay, fair enough. I'll continue with my own agenda, which is to print my own graphic novellas in Zine format, promote myself and my stories through punk rock publications, street performances, online venues, and open mics, and consign at stores whose proprietors meet the expectations of my ethical standards. At least that's the plan. But if you do believe in me and you are impressed by my writing, then please, don't jerk me around. I am very impressed by your credentials and I admire your ability to eke out a living for yourself by dint of your talent, so long as you do not compromise your integrity to do so. I would really appreciate it if you could show me, show me the ropes, put me in touch with some people who can publish my work, anything really. Anything other than just making yourself feel good by dining to talk with me. And if you can't do any of that, then at least be a real friend. I have enough ephemeral acquaintances, man. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in search of something with a little more substance than that in life. Yours in earnest, Sean Dune.
<clears throat> people I know. The people I know move and drift like smoke, who speak to the storms in their lives and live in tornadoes that come through, recklessly taking and rearranging things with all the indiscriminate power of God's hands on the lives of his worshipers. The people I know raise babies that aren't theirs, pulled from the rubble, too scared to cry. The people I know run their index fingers along scars from puncture wounds in the eighth grade. They ride around with their trigger fingers on a trigger, shoot at people, might run, might not. They wear cell bar jackets and sit in cells on the hottest day of the year, sweating tears into a pillow whose grandmas sit in a window waiting for it to rain. Will it come? They hold grips on invisible bars set in place as stripes cursing through their hopes and their dreams were dreamers that became dreamless so that somebody new could have them too. They are girls in buffalo stances that dance for men they hate, who even sometimes hate themselves but still paint the pain on in the morning. The people I know were young once, still sag their pants and might still hit somebody up or shake up with a shorty outside of a corner store on Chicago. They're people who let their childhoods blur into middle age, used to wait outside of random apartment buildings for someone to leave so they could rush in eight deep and smoke blunts in the boiler room. The people I know have flaws, smoke squares, Want to quit, but they haven't, might not ever. They bite their fingernails when they get nervous, sometimes raw until it hurts to hold things or press buttons on a phone. They live in moods, illiterate blends of feeling, emotion, empty and wet. The people I know, the people I know move and drift. The people I know love a certain woman, but whose real girlfriend is sorrow, and they're getting married in the fall. They eat propaganda and throw up lies, got holes in their bodies, holes in their ideologies, join movements to meet girls, then leave to become Jesus in another once invested in their futures in a little white girl or the big bad boy, you know what that is, Bobby, Bobby. They are dying constellations whose genius staggers and make decisions in lines drawn from tumult. The perpetuity of an ever-bending arc throughout the history of our universe that find and forget God every day. They will live in the jungle and burn down the zoo. The God and mortality inside of them overpowered by the gorilla. They can't see far, but they can taste the whole universe and can smell the money on you. Who hurt thinking about what will make them ache when they get older. They never thought they'd live past 30 and now they are scared to die and want to live forever. 
The people I know go to bed in a cell but live in whole scenarios in lives all around the world. Generations of crooks whose DNA are the only fragments of matter that matter in the bricks of these walls. Stopped expecting friends to be there when they got out. Stopped using the phone because no one would answer it anyways. Because they remind them of a time when they weren't so important, so together. People I know wreck their bodies for prison basketball championships and smuggle ingredients through metal detectors just to eat like human beings. They are the children of Armageddon with teal striated in the texture of their skin and are ready for rapture who have died and come back to life to move and drift like smoke forever. The people I know. Dear Sean, I appreciate you being real with me, and I'm going to be real with you. I'm not here because I'm some highfalutin jack-off on a philanthropy trip. I'm doing this to pat myself on the back. There are plenty of easier, easier ways to do that. I'm not here because I know enough to help you become a better writer if that's what you're interested in. I'm here because I want to hear the stories you have to tell. I enjoy reading them. And I want to help you tell those stories better. You want to know if you have the goods? I'll be honest with you. The two stories you sent me are not yet ready for publishing. (laughs) That's not to say that you don't have talent, you do. Some of your writing is very strong, and some of it is very funny. But, that, but there's a ton of work left to do. If you're really interested in publishing, which is something I think you can do eventually, <laughs> you need to focus first on your writing. I'm here to help you do that. Once you're ready... I would be willing to help you, but it's something you have to get on your own merits because your writing is good and not because I know someone, which frankly I don't. (laughs) I've had some things come out, but I'm still hustling as much as the next guy. If that works for you and you're willing to to put in the work, then that works for me. Without further ado, Here are some notes about your story. (laughs) Refer to my annotation on the pages for more specific suggestions on cuts and different lines I liked. I'm from the Neshi's bloodline. That's Bill Baker if you don't speak Ojibwe Moen. Ngizi Dodem. I am Eagle Clan. I'm from sitting on green boxes on Six Mile Corner, watching cars go by. Sometimes their four doors didn't match. I'm from Packer games on Sundays, Greyhound trips for the holidays, 
and Easter baskets with Carla. I'm from women with the same last name and a father none of us knew. I'm from the woods, northern, where pines and birch bark blanket both bends of tribal roads, paved and gravel. I'm from a single-parent household, Michael Jackson cassette tapes, Purple Rain posters, and latchkey kids. I'm from Title V programs, commodes on pantry shelves, cucumbers grown in Grandpa Jake's garden, and a mean old dog named Turkey. (laughs) I'm from Crime Won't Change Anything, and you should have known better. I'm I'm from where silence is normal and punitive. Hugs are warmed and forced Catholicism still weighs heavy on my mother's shoulders. At 73, the burden has lightened. This is where I'll always return. How should I look or act, I asked him in answer when he said, you don't look or act like you spent that much time in prison. Three decades, plus some change, meters running. Should my eyes be crazed, glazed, unblinking, uncaring? Should my face be lumped and creased, teeth rotted, gapped and broken? Perhaps the nightmares I've lived have twisted me. The brawls and beatdowns broken my back. Ought my atric hands shake, palsy from the deeds I've done. Defend myself, offend thee, have blooded and bled the dead who fell on rising to the bell. You wonder at my outward normalcy and doubt. Did you expect to gaze upon faded blue teardrops dripping from the corner of my sad eye or crude tattoos of zodiac's hearts, forgotten names of lovers cavorting, my neck encircled with blue dashes, subscripted, cut on the dotted line? Or rather, you would frown at love and hate Appeared on the battered knuckles of each hand and notes to jumbled creeds and symbols snaking down my arms. How should I act? Would you prefer I meet your expectations, grasp your neck with yellow clawed fingers, tobacco stained tips squeezing off your airways, sour breath tinged with yeasty fumes of prison wine burning your eyes while I rip? the watch from your wrist with my free hand? Does that suit your notion of what a man becomes? 
when he's been caged for decades with wild beasts? Can you only imagine the outward destruction of a man and not the inner? Can you not see beneath the surface to the scars of broken hopes and dreams inside my heart, the life unlived in freedom, exed out? The loss of love and family snatched away like a rooftop in the storm, exposing the trashed memories, meager belongings soaked in the shattered house below? Of course you can't. You only see the outward man, clean-shaven, smiles, upright posture, yet unbroken, unblemished, as the wanted posters say. No scars, marks, or tattoos, except for those you cannot see, trauma obscured beneath the sedimentary layers of life in prison. My life in prison. Sorry to disappoint you. My junior year of high school, the music department selected Jerry Herman's applause as the spring musical a rather risque choice for a conservative suburban school district in central Indiana in the mid-1970s. To appease the school board, the gay bar scene was made straight, but the love story between unmarried leads remained intact, as did Margot Channing's over-the-top gay hairdresser. Of course, I wanted to play the romantic lead, Bill who got to belt out a love ballad as the tension between he and the star came to a head. They gave me Dwayne the hairdresser. (laughs) (laughs) After I threw every stereotypical homosexual characterization a closeted gay boy could think of in an attempt to throw the audition, surely they wouldn't go for something so outlandish. I knew I was in trouble when the director literally fell out of his seat and rolled down the aisle in great peals of laughter. Too late to turn back now. There was no way to tone down Dwayne's scene-stealing repartee with wonderfully bitchy lines like, Isn't she a treasure? I think I'll bury her. (laughs) And a soaring solo falsetto descant trilled in the show's title song. The coup de grace in act two was when I strutted on stage and struck a pose, decades before Madonna taught us how to vogue, announcing to Margot I'd just bought a fun fur, a rabbit fur chubby, borrowed from a big girl in the cast. As the audience burst into raucous laughter, my father, ashamed, sank down into his seat as someone behind him declared, no one can act that good. Decades later, during intermission of an all-male prison production of the Scottish play, 15 years into a life sentence 
for the most shameful and heinous act of my life. My dad overheard someone complimenting my Lady Macbeth and turned around to proudly proclaim, that's my son. I can't believe I lost her number. Gemenso, it was the most perfecto flirt ever, and in the blink of my lovesick third eye, it was gone. I lost it like an expensive break record on eBay.com. <laughs> well, to be honest, not all is lost essay. I just have to find it like a rare gem hidden amongst those stacks upon stacks of stacks 45s and find out all star salsa records that make just a proper fraction of my extensive record collection. You see me, compadre. I am a DJ by trade, but a bona fide 12-inch record collector, a full-fledged, die-hard, dusty-fingered crate digger by habit, and I'll be sent straight to DJ hell, where all the turntables are belt-drive and none of the needles work if I can't find the pinche numero of my future LP wife. <laughs> this girl, excuse me, hermano, I, I mean this woman, because she definitely had the cara de una azteca goddess in the body of a great serpent, all deadly curves, just fuming sexuality, had just walked into my music studio. My life of seductive samples and dangerous drum breaks, smoked some of Shy Town's finest fluorescent lime green daydreams, disappeared in a cloud of oyster gray smoke screens, and left me a clue of love. Un recuerdo de amor, like in some cheesy romantic telenovela that I'm starring in to one day find her and sweep her off her fat laced Adidas, or in this case, make her groove to my hand tailored beats like a pendejo head. I practically lost it. <laughs> Everything started when I was spinning an all 45 funk set at the local hip-hop dive, Kotlikis. That I was feeling so fresh and so clean like that song by Outkast. In my zone, minding my own business, haciendo la cosa. My dark brown eyes analyzing the deep grooves that the tracks make. I think it was a cover of a famoso James Brown and the Flames cut in Espanol when I looked up. Misojos became magnetically attracted to those of a Chicano, Chicana angel directamente across the bar from me. <laughs> now, I don't like to toot my own mambo trombone trombeta, but I am a ladies hombre. And as soon as I became a free agent on El Market de Single Gente, I made a promise to myself to never chase more. Never again was I going to let El Stupido Cupido make a payaso of myself with a pinche arrow sticking out from my bleeding treasure chest. If it was true love, I mean real true love. If the gods, those horned and winged diablos, willed it to blossom from my sacred-thorned heartbeat, then I would use the secret powers of positive thinking to manifest that beautiful reality before they could do it for me. Anyways, I smiled at her, Miles Davis, away from me, swimming and floating in that sea of cream and cafe-colored faces with my gleaming white alligator teeth. I looked down at the seven inch I had spinning on that golden Technic 1200 turntable with my favorite royal blue Orophon needle hooked to it and reached into my trusty sci-fi DJ bag to put on the next track. All too ready to break my own self-imposed Chicano rules on love and lust by buying myself another Dos Minutos de Cancion and a turntable to go over and spark up a convo with her sexy self. Like the mystical mist surrounding an ancient Mayan temple, my dream angel had evaporated into that ocean of music lovers and fine drink connoisseurs. 
It was then that I knew she was going to be a stronger addiction than the one involving LPs that I'd been cultivating since I was a freshman in high school. I thought to myself that she was just a mirage, some dream lover that my unconsciousness had created using all the memories I had collected, like the records I bought and traded online of those mujeres that I had merely tasted or indulged in, but who couldn't satisfy my eternal thirst for the next conquest. Oh, she was all too real, my friends and my beloved readers, because I tell you, she literally bumped elbows with me as we both hunted for those heavenly 12-inch slabs of rotating vinyl wax at our favorite local disco digs, the Rusty Revolver, a semana later. I took a deep breath in, summoning the courage of 6,000 Incan warriors sent on a war party, and using my fox-like skills, I gradually began digging through the record piles right next to her. There I went, stalking, stealthily, my brown fingers like golden jaguars on the prowl. H I J K L E. All the way up to the end records, and then the moment I hoped for happened, mi hermano, while the iron butterflies made their nest in the very small fibers of my small intestines. We bumped into each other. And like always happens, we both jumped, startled as if we never accidentally bumped into another human being, and said, I said, con permiso. She smiled her electric smile of fuego at me. Our eyes met once again, and my brilliant corazon melted my insides like red-hot lava flowing from the mouths of newly erupted volcanoes causing eternal internal damage. Quickly, I said, hey. <laughs> Weren't you at the funk night at Coliques last night? I could have sworn I saw you there. She responded ever so slightly, her words forming into ancient spirits as she spoke them. Yeah, oh shit, you were the DJ that brought that motherfucking Noche badass. This is great, I thought to myself. The ancients have shown me the way into her stereo heart jukebox. Now all I have to do is keep my love rhymes flowing long enough to hold her interest and invite her to my next show. That is, if I don't accidentally let her know that I want her to be her future LP husband. Blend beautifully crafted mix CDs with her and raise gorgeous brown DJ babies to keep our hip-hop nation alive and strong. <laughs> if it's one thing I learned, and a pedazo of a hard-earned advicio to all you future DJ cupids and rico suavementes, never, I mean never, let la mujer de tus sueños know how much you want her right off the first song in the playlist. No me importa if it hurts your little heart so much, it feels like it's going to explode. Like over the overheated engine of a convertible 57 Bel Air. That's good. If you know it, cool. Be cool, primo. Like a good party mix. Let the grooves build up and up until you play that one banger that gets the lugar burning down. Simone, I say casually. I've been doing Sabado nights there with DJ Miraculous and Ambidextrous for a year now, and we got some really good head there. I mean, heads. <laughs> I think. She says, I know, I've seen you there before. You snap. What? She's been going to ambidextrous for a year now, and I never once noticed her. I really am a mensal. Well, come to think of it, I've always had a dime piece there with, you know, me to show off to my DJ homies like a record you buy at the second hand, but know it's worth way more overseas. <laughs> or maybe I had seen her before. But only now that I had nearly given up on love and began to think of myself as a new person was I ready to meet La Mujer de Mi Destino. As I'm about to get lost in my DJ love thoughts, she grabs a hold of my harpsichord heartstrings and squeezes. She asks me if I smoke trees. Of course. Only stuff straight from the earth. 
I tell her, I like mushrooms and mezcal. And there was a few times doing blue lightning acid with my brother out in Aztlan. I got some really good Kush Green Gold in my studio. You, you want to come over and listen to some mixes I'm working on? She responds slowly with her sexy self. Most deaf. Let's do that. Let me buy our records and you buy the blunt wraps. Peach and blueberry are my favorites. Hint, hint. <laughs> ah, a woman after my heart-shaped headphones. We end up back at my secret headquarters, my musical laboratory, and a real session is coming together. Marisol and I are taking turns mixing and scratching on the ones and twos, and a few of my DJ friends are coming through. She invited some of her homegirls, and we're chiefing up, and the place is getting foggy from all the tequila blunt smoke and teeny from all the deep lowrider cuts we're spinning. We do psychedelic rock, jazz, Latin jazz to soul, and hip-hop tracks that sample those tracks, and we're having a blast while getting blasted. We listen to Jimmy, Al Green, Bitches Brew, Dade Dilla. All things are going good, and I can feel my seasoned lungs get filled with the venomous blunt smoke when Soul says, Shit, look at what time it is. Uh, you really know how to throw down and show a B-girl a good time, homie, but I got my music engineering class manana, and a girl needs her beauty sleep. I make a silent prayer to myself. My God, I have found my soulmate, but instead I give her a huge hug and kiss on the cheek using our mutual smoke intoxications as an excuse to cop a real good feel of her beautiful waistline bass lines. As she heads to the basement door with her homegirls, I blurt out a very unslick like, Yo, Sol, how am I supposed to call you about my next night? She says, No problem, Mr. DJ. I wrote it on the first record I ever bought. You do remember which one I told you, right? I respond with a sly smirk in my green haze. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. How could I forget that? Peace, you ladies get home safely and make sure my future wife gets to class on time. Damn, did I just say that? They all laugh at me. You must be stoned. and dip out the door into the warm starry night. Now all I have to do, mi hermano, is remember which record was her first. I, I remember it had yellow mountains on it, or was it an orange sun with a clenched brown fist raised? My, my mind is a faded blur the next sunny morning, playing back like a record overworn from one too many plays. I guess I'll just start with A and work my way up to Z. One record down, about 2,500 more to go, and you better believe I'm going to find her no more, no, mi amigo. DJ Love, LPs and Girls for Pita, S.A. There's a lot of gray in what's left of my hair, my George Jefferson tonsure monks somewhere still wear, follically forsaking fly-ass nigga, the DMV once quickest trigger, who rock-conked James Brown waves circa his cocksure Apollo days, when my cipher rocked razor-lined ones against the grain, temple tapers in the high-top box phase that locked into dreads. Styling changes I spied from numerous cells. Prisons, homie, not jail. Where the trigger has slowed, rusted, stuck, matured into more piercing and substantive flows, consistent with a graying tonsure that one purposely grown to elicit respect of unk, old school, old timer, and evidence of gravitas shown by the once fly-ass nigger with the quickest trigger turned monk holding court in the yard, monastic ground on the ground that ground me down with untold pressures to change, followed by painful, meticulous, and 
multifaceting cuts into my immutable color that produce character, clarity, carrots, and a myriad of things. Palmer Park and whip assings can never swing this bejeweled hair gray old wise man bling. I miss the feeling of weightlessness while floating in the ocean and staring at the clear blue sky, gently bobbing to the rhythm of events beyond the horizon. I miss the salt stinging my eyes while healing my wounds and the waves cleansing my soul while driving me under. I miss the way the crashing surf roils with sounds of the kids on the shore, filling plastic pails to water the moats of their ever-crumbling castles. I miss the smell of sunscreen, clam cakes, Irish moss, and French fries splashed with vinegar. I miss pretending not to hear the lifeguards shrill when I float beyond the bluey. I miss rolling over like driftwood, tossed about the sea to watch patches of eelgrass dance and step with ebb and flow of the undertow. I miss hearing my heart pound when I think about Jaws. I miss the adrenaline that comes with feeling vulnerable. I miss the fear that comes with freedom. I miss being set adrift by the moon. Dear Carla, what I must do foremost is express my gratitude for your willingness to share your goodness with someone deemed unworthy, for your decision to veer down this dark and lonely road and not being afraid of talking to the shadows that reside here. Thank you for being you. Know that at the very least, out of seven billion humans on this earth, this one here appreciates your life. Uh, thanks for sharing the writing by that guy in prison. I mean, I, I didn't know stuff like that could be termed essay or that it would be worth anything because, you know, I have several things like that which I've never shared with anyone and which I never imagined anyone would give a damn about. Maybe I can show you? I treasure every piece of literature that you send. Picture a forgotten phantom down in his cavernous lair, except he can never leave there, and he feels is iron and rock. So when you send him raindrops, one by one he pours and pours himself over until the heat from his flesh exhausts the moisture and he can imagine the sky and the clouds and himself flying among them. For a moment, it does that. I've read your short stories countless times and I'm not trying to you know, flatter you. 
I truly like your style and energy and complex simplicity. And I think that there is power in your words and in you. But who am I? I hope you believe these things about yourself and that those around you do as well. Carly, yes, I am aware of how insane and absurd and depraved and wrong some of the things I say sound. I know I sometimes write very graphic and disturbing material, which is difficult or impossible to respond to, but that's my reality. The reality of billions across this planet. There is killing and dying and hunger and suffering happening at every moment. And for some goddamn reason, this stays on my mind every day. And it really hurts me. And it wreaks destruction within me. And I also know that my wound represents a mere drop of blood in the huge red pool already spilled by humanity. So, I love how it adds up. The Tony Hoagland poem you sent. I don't know. I can feel how he feels here. Or maybe it's just me. Ephemeral and disconnected from mainstream society. And troubled and wistful and pondersome. Is that even a word? (laughs) Pigs recently threw away my dictionary. Contraband. LOL. I saw the footprints like the notes of the crazy song. Sometimes it feels that way in my head. I like his naked honesty. So far you've showed me Tony Hoagland, Dean Faello, Reina Maria Rilke, and other stuff. Thank you. Yes, Carla. I do a lot of self-reflection, every sort of it, every day. I can't avoid it, being trapped Within a tiny cement cube for the majority of the time, you can't escape it, and you can't escape yourself. I figured out many things about our nature and society by reflecting on very difficult issues that persecute me. I've learned the hard way through blood and tears and hunger and pain. You know, not touching the flames, but being born into the fire. I've had to let go of a lot of hate. In order to do so, I had to learn and understand the human psyche. You know how in our brains we have these mirror cells which make us smile when others smile or subconsciously mirror the face and emotions we see? I think that for people in captivity who are deprived of normal interactions and have very limited contact, begin to mirror the metal in cement, its grayness, coldness, its blank lifelessness, and we mirror the cell We become the cells, which are hollow and gray and designed to destroy humanity. As for what my writing goals are for 2018, seriously, you're making me think hard about this because I respect you and your words. I owe you all of my respect and love. So for now, my goal will be to write every day, no matter in what form, and even if it's just a few sentences, and, and also to read every day. The story I sent, I just wrote it a few days ago. I wrote it for you, and I hope you like it. 
But that does not excuse you from your mentor role, evil laughter. I want you to always judge anything I ever send the way you judge yourself. Never take it easy on me. I'm not sensitive. I want you to kick my ass, okay? So what are your writing goals for the next nine months? (laughs) Sincere love and respect, Angel Ayala. I name bridges of every day. The morning commute is a bridge connecting the comfort of my bed to the grind of the pens that I push, papers I fold into model F-14 Tomcats. And wife says to her husband, I got a cute angina. And the husband says, yeah, and your tits ain't bad either. A dirty joke is a bridge between frowns, draw bridges, Cross bridges, burn bridges, sometimes saying I'm sorry only bridges the moment of hurt of what's unforgivable. Sometimes it's bridges the lessons I need to learn in order to build better bridges. A bridge has been my friend, an enemy has been my bridge. Thursday is Wednesday's bridge to Friday, a glass of wine may be a bridge to a beautiful woman, but her hand isn't necessarily a bridge to her heart. Turning 20 was the beginning of a whole new bridge. Ten years long, shoulders wide, standing in the middle of the bridge of size, I see a world of bridges I've left behind. La Romana was a bridge.